passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. This last week's just been a, a kind of a tough week. It's been hard interpersonally, and part of that might just be because of the weather, uh, to be completely honest, and how cold it is, and it's supposed to be nice out. Uh, but, you know, some interpersonal things, um, church things, just uh, seeing the brokenness of humanity and, and just being torn up about that. Uh, a friend of mine who, who doesn't live anywhere near here, um, I, I met him in seminary, and, and he is just in, in a really tough time as well. And, and as I've been working through all of this, I've also been going through this passage. And maybe, you, maybe I'm the only one, but there are times where you can look at something and look at something and look at something and not realize how it applies to you until you take a break and you come back to it. You see, this morning is a, about hardship. It's about suffering. And it's about how God teaches us and uses those times to make us more like him. And, and for some reason, that didn't hit me until this morning. It didn't hit me that God was using this time. And I'm not saying that there's anything serious going on in my life or, or, or anything like that. It's just a blah time, and God uses those times. God uses those times to make us more like him, to loosen our grip on the world. And that's not the reason why we suffer. That's not the cause of our suffering. We, we, we suffer because we live in a broken world. We, we suffer because we are hurt by other people, things like that. But in the midst of those difficulties... In the midst of the hardships that we face, when you're ready to give up because your boss is being difficult, or when you're ready to give up because of how insensitive your spouse is, or because your children don't want to have anything to do you, in the midst of those times, we can rest assured that God takes the bad and he gets to work. God uses the bad. God doesn't cause the bad, but God uses the bad to refine us. To turn our hearts to him. It's not enjoyable. No one volunteers for cancer or job loss or any sort of hardship that they go through. But in those moments, in between the tears, even in the midst of the tears, God points us to him. And friends, God is at work. God is shaping us. He's forming us. He's polishing us to make us more like him. And to be a greater testament to his grace each and every day. And that's what we really see this morning in Genesis 29. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to, to that passage, that chapter. Last week, we looked at the life of Jacob, and we saw Jacob encountering God at Bethel. And as he was at Bethel and encountering God, God promised him uh, the, the promises given to his grandfather Abraham. But even more important than that, he promised him his presence. Jacob was promised that God would be with him. And good news for us this morning, if you belong to God, then that promise exists for you today as well. That God will be with you. You see, just like Jacob last week saw angels ascending and descending at this location, Bethel, as an assurance of God's presence, we can look to the cross 
We can look to Jesus and see that as assurance of God's presence to be with us as well. Of course, that presence doesn't always look the way that we would think. It doesn't work its way out the way that we would expect. For Jacob, he had to endure years of frustration at the hand of his uncle Laban. God was with him, but not in the way that he expected, because God had turned his gaze to his newest project. Jacob was like a block of marble, and just like a block of marble, it must experience the discomfort, the pain of the chisel from the artist. To experience the constant chips, the shavings, the grazing away, and the pain. Have you ever felt the chisel? Maybe you're feeling it right now. I assure you that it is not pointless. No matter how meaningless your pain and hardship and the suffering of those that are around you may seem, God is at work. God is thrusting his chisel into your self-reliance. God is making constant passes of his chisel into your pride. God is wiping away and scraping away your anxiety, your fear. We can be assured that God is with us. And that God is at work turning us into beautiful masterpieces to his grace and his glory. A testament to his power. Friends, that's what we see this morning in Genesis 29. Up to this point in Genesis, Jacob has been known for one thing, being a schemer. The ultimate deceiver. And yet now this schemer, this ultimate deceiver, meets his match in his uncle Laban. Laban, the man who looks like, makes Jacob's cons look like child's play, is about to cause Jacob a great deal of hardship. But it is not meaningless, for God uses it to make Jacob more like him. Let's pick up starting in verse 1 of chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of the well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. And Jacob said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. After Bethel, after this incredible encounter with God, where God promises Jacob his presence, Jacob begins on his journey toward Haran with a newfound determination. He sets out with this new determination. This phrase, Jacob set out on his journey. Jacob went out on his journey here. Literally in Hebrew says, Jacob picked up his feet. The image here is of a man who has newfound determination. A man who has a bounce in his step, ready to go forward because God is with him. 
After all, this is a man who just encountered God, who had one of the greatest experiences of his life. And so he continues forward in confidence. As he journeys forward in confidence towards this well or towards this city, Haran, he finds this well a few months later, and it's covered with a stone. And this was pretty typical back then. It was to prevent contamination. It was to prevent one group of of shepherds or one herd from hoarding all of the water. And as he approaches this well, as he approaches these shepherds, he is relieved to hear that he is near Haran, and these shepherds know his uncle Laban. What's more than that, his cousin is coming. I think that Jacob can begin to see that there's about to, have some, there's about to be some conflict. He can see that there are four herds that are on their way to this well, and there's only one well. There is not enough room for all of them to be watered. And so he calls the shepherds out. He calls them to the carpet for their laziness and says, Hey, you should already be back out in the pasture. You shouldn't be hanging around at the well. And the laziness of the shepherds contrasts what Jacob does next, picking up in verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told the news to Laban, her father. So Jacob, as he sees Rachel coming near, he he springs into action here. He tries to uncover the well by himself, and he does so where the shepherds were waiting for more more help. And this is an extremely uh, impressive feat of strength here. And it might be easy for us to look at Jacob and just picture him as a chauvinistic bro, if you will. This man is trying to show off for this very attractive woman who just shows up on the scene, showing the strength that he can, uh, he can exert in this moment. If you've ever been to a weight room or an athletic facility, you know exactly what I'm talking about here, of what Jacob is doing. This is, and it kind of fits into Jacob's state, but, but it's not really being fair if that's all we think of Jacob here. Because at the same time that Jacob might be showing this, he's also trying to show his cousin and show his uncle that he is an asset. Remember, this is a man who has nothing to his name, who is far from home, who's all alone. He's trying to show the family that he is going to ask to live with them, that he can be help around the farm. He's trying to make a good impression, and indeed he does. Because Rachel runs to her father to tell the news, even after he kisses her without introducing himself first. This is a man who has made a good impression, and she runs home to tell her dad, and that's where we pick up here in verse 13. It says this, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone of my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So Laban hears the news about Jacob, and he comes running. And I just want to say, of course, Laban comes running. Laban remembers the last time that someone from this side of the family showed up in Haran. Decades earlier, in Genesis 24, uh, one of Abraham's servants showed up after making a long journey from Palestine to Haran. And he came calling for Rebekah. 
And not just calling for Rebekah, but he brought countless camels and, and countless numbers of wealth with him. And Laban probably experienced this great joy at the thought of hearing that his nephew was coming. After all, this is Laban, the man who probably thought when he had a daughter that he could finally get some money out of this deal and pass her off for a great bride price to this sister and her rich family. And so he runs with all that is within him to meet his nephew, to meet the wealth that is finally going to be his. And when he gets there, the sight is underwhelming. He sees Jacob, and that's it. There's no gold. There's no camels. There's no servants. There's no precious stones. There's no incense. There's no perfume. There's just Jacob. But Laban shows a little bit of grace and decides to invite him into the family anyway. He says, come on home, Jacob. Stay with us Rest with us for a while, and that while turns into a month. And then there's a pause right here in this story. Before we continue, I think it's important for us just to to compare this story, to compare what's happened so far, this encounter at the well, with a similar encounter at a well that took place in Genesis chapter 24 with Abraham's servant. And as we compare these things, I think there's a lot that we can learn from this passage First, what are some of the similarities? Well, both in Genesis 24, when Abraham's servant follows God's leading to this well in Haran and eventually comes home with Rebekah for Isaac. And here, when Jacob follows God's leading to this well in Haran, we see that God is clearly at work. In both situations, these men arrive at wells that are hundreds of miles away from home without a map, and they show up and they encounter a person from the family that they are seeking right off the bat. In both cases, they are both welcome into the family and both eventually receive the bride that they have shown up for. God's providence, God's care, God's loving hand is clearly at work throughout each encounter. It's undeniable that God is at work. It is not a coincidence that Jacob shows up at this well at this time. It is not a coincidence that decades later, hundreds of years later, Ruth, as she is trying to make a living for her and for her mother-in-law, just so happens to show up at Boaz's farm. It is not a coincidence that Saul, when he could have chosen any person to play music in his Uh, in his presence, chooses David, the man who will eventually become king. It is not a coincidence that Jesus just so happens to show up at a well in Samaria and just so happens to share the gospel with that woman and just so happens to lead to the salvation of an entire town of Samaritans. It is not a coincidence. It is providence, God's way of caring for his creation. Friends, it is providence that has led you here this morning as well. If this is your first time or your hundredth, of, hundredth time visiting, if you are just visiting and you never come back, God has a word for you. That is his providence today. God is at work bringing you and caring for you as he desires to make you more like him. 
providence is a part of Genesis 29, just like it's a part of Genesis 24. But I think that it's even more significant to look at the differences between the two of them. If you remember in Genesis 24, the servant of Abraham soaks the entire process in prayer. As he arrives in Haran, before he even approaches the well, he prays that God would bless his efforts. And here Jacob is quiet. Abraham's servant, when he first sees Rebekah at the well, is first drawn to her because of her appearance. But then he takes a moment and steps back and waits to see what kind of character she has. Jacob doesn't do that. Jacob charges ahead without much thinking, just focused on the beauty of Rachel. Then we look at at their uh, their conversations with Laban. The servant of Abraham, the moment he talks with Laban, the name of God is always on his lips. Over and over and over, he mentions how God has brought him to this place, how God is at work behind the scenes, orchestrating everything. And Laban, who is not a a believer, Laban is is a man who worships idols, is forced to credit God. Jacob is quiet. Jacob is a man who just saw God in the previous chapter. Jacob is a man who heard God promise him that God would be with him. And he's quiet. And if you notice, Laban is quiet too. And just something that we can learn from that. See, most of the people around us are open to talking about God. They just won't bring it up themselves. And if, they don't bring, if we don't bring it up, then they won't bring it up either and, and we'll miss opportunities to talk about God. It is our responsibility to be like Abraham's servant. If we are silent like Jacob, we will miss out on opportunities to praise God publicly for the ways that he is at work in our lives. I'm not saying that we should be pushy. I'm just saying that we should give credit where credit's due. In short, that we should be Abraham's servant. That we should not be Jacob. That's a good summary of the differences here. Be Abraham's servant. Don't be Jacob. Abraham's servant is one of the most admirable characters, not only in that chapter, but in the entirety of Genesis. Jacob, on the other hand, shows us that he has a long way to go. This is the man who saw God at Bethel, and it's clear that that did not make him perfect. Jacob was still a work in progress. But here's the good news for us. Even though he was a work in progress, God was still with him. God was still walking with him. Even though this man naturally did not think of God first, God had a plan. God knew a way to address that shortcoming in his life. And that's where we turn to the next scene, if you will, of this chapter, taking place, starting taking place a month later in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now after a month, Jacob has no plans of leaving and returning back to his home. And so Laban is starting to get a little antsy here. And and he says, All right, it's time to make this, this man an offer. It's not fair that I'm not paying you, Jacob. So how about you come to work for me as an employee? And it sounds on the, on the front, uh, at the beginning, it sounds like it's a generous uh, offer. 
But then you dig a little deeper and you see Laban's character and you realize it's not. Yes, shifting the relationship from familial to uh, an employee-employer relationship means that Jacob will get paid. But also at the same time, it means that Laban has a chance to take advantage of Jacob. And that's exactly what he plans on doing. That's exactly what ends up happening in the future. Let's continue reading in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So Jacob's uncle approaches him and asks him to accept this offer of payment, and Jacob agrees. Then the narration skips into this description of the two daughters here, of Leah and Rachel. And notice how they are described. Rachel, the younger, is described as a beautiful woman. That's relatively easy for us to understand culturally. But Leah, it describes as someone who has weak eyes. What does that mean? Well, honestly, we're not really sure. The context of this passage makes it clear that it's, it's something that's negative. There's something different about Leah that Rachel is the, the preferred one in Jacob's eyes. But the word weak in other places in the Bible can also be translated to mean delicate, to mean precious. So we don't know exactly what is being referred to here. It's possible that it's, a, it's an idiom, like saying that she was weak on the eyes. It's possible that she was a sickly woman, that she had an eye problem, or she had some other physical characteristic that made her less desirable in Jacob's eyes. But what is clear in this passage is that Jacob desires Rachel, and he doesn't desire Leah. In fact, based off of Laban's other actions, his later actions in this passage, we can see that Jacob isn't the only one who thinks that Rachel is preferable. Laban treats his daughter so poorly that he's willing to pawn her off because he doesn't want her around to get her out of the house. And he takes advantage of Jacob's full-fledged infatuation with this woman. He asks, or Jacob offers seven years of service to, to marry this woman, to marry Rachel. And this is an outrageous amount. If you look at, culturally at that time, uh, the typical bride price was about 30 to 40 shekels. We don't need to know what a shekel is, but the average worker uh, was paid about 10 shekels a year. So it would have been appropriate for Jacob to offer three to four years worth of service for Rachel's hand. Instead, he offers double that amount. It's, It's like Jacob knew he was in a tough spot. He didn't have any material wealth. He didn't have any collateral with him. So he wasn't in a place to bargain with his uncle. And unfortunately, Laban has already transitioned from, uh, from uncle to employer, and he agrees to this exploitation of his nephew for the benefit of himself. And notice what he says. He doesn't explicitly say, I will give you Rachel. He resigns to the fact that he will have to give her away, and he just uses the word her. That's going to come up to play later on. And so years pass. 
Jacob's love for Rachel is so great that the days seem to fly by in a moment. And it seems like the perfect love story to our culture. This is a man who is so in love with Rachel that he will do anything and everything to win the hand of his princess. Seven years fly by, but after seven years, Laban seems unwilling to follow through. In fact, at the beginning of the next section, which we're going to read here in a moment, Jacob has to demand payment. Laban is completely unwilling to give what belonged to Jacob. Pick up in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Jacob is aware that he might be getting the short end of the deal here from Laban because Laban is hesitant, is reluctant to give his daughter Rachel away. But a deal is a deal, and so Jacob refers back to that, and Laban follows through and begins this process of of the festivities. He starts this feast. And in ancient cultures, weddings weren't just a one-day affair. They were a week-long celebration. The people were married on the first day, and then the rest of the week was a time to celebrate the marriage of these two. And so this marriage feast begins, and Jacob is euphoric about what is happening. He has just been married to the woman that he has been working for his entire life, and he enjoys himself, and he begins eating and drinking, and probably drinking some more, and probably drinking even more, and more, and more. And it gets to the nighttime here. He's ready to consummate the marriage, and he's probably so drunk that he can't tell the difference between up and down. And everything is going the exact way that Laban had hoped. That's what we see in the rest of the story. Pick up in verse 23. But in the evening, he, being Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not, to be, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week for this one, and we will give you the other, also in return for serving me for another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bil, uh, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Jacob is at a point where he is so unaware of what is going on that he consummates the marriage with Leah and not with Rachel. Jacob, the deceiver, has been deceived by his uncle. In fact, that's exactly what he calls his uncle. He calls his uncle a deceiver. He says, why have you deceived me? This word deceived has only been used one other time in the Bible so far. Can you guess who it's used to describe? It's Jacob. Yes, the the irony here is great. And Laban, he tries to justify what he's done. He says, well, culturally, this is just the way things happen. And that very well may be true, but that doesn't excuse his deceit, not just that moment, but for seven years. 
For seven years, he has been planning this. From the very beginning, Laban has been planning to take advantage of his nephew. He has had no intention of giving Rachel to Jacob. He has been planning this from the very beginning. And Laban has a solution. He says, well, you served seven years for one. Why not serve seven years for the other? If you do that, I'll even give you Rachel up front. So Jacob is a man who has paid two times the normal bride price for his bride. And now he has to pay another two times that bride price to get the woman that he wants. He has to pay four times what this woman would normally uh, cost for a bride price. And this text ends ominously. It it talks about what is to come between this. And this is one of the reasons why, uh, even though the Bible never explicitly says anything about uh, polygamy, uh, every single time that polygamy is mentioned, it ends up in shambles and destroying the family. We see that there is this competition between Leah and Rachel. That Jacob spends all his time with Rachel and neglects Leah. And this is part of the hostile relationship that exists between these two sisters. They're always and constantly in a battle for their husband's affection. That's what we're going to look at next week with the birth of their children. Or excuse me, in two weeks, the birth of their children. But right now, let's briefly look at what God is teaching Jacob. Let's briefly look at the way that this deceiver is being taught through this deceit. I mentioned up to this point in Genesis, Jacob is known as a schemer. He is selfish. He will do whatever is necessary to get what he wants. He swindles his brother out of his birthright for soup. He steals his brother's blessing by dressing up as his brother. He doesn't care about anyone else. He only thinks about himself. What's more than that, he only relies on himself. But here Jacob is a victim of deceit. He is not the deceiver. He has met his match in his uncle. In Genesis chapter 27, Jacob relies on his mother's plan to steal his brother's blessing. But here, Laban is the one who is planning. And he plans for seven years to accomplish this deception against Jacob. In Genesis chapter 27, Jacob, at his mother's direction, dresses up as his brother in order to deceive his father's eyesight, and it works out perfectly. But here in Genesis 29, Laban directs his daughter, Leah, to dress up as her younger sister and uses the darkness, uses inebriation to deceive Jacob's eyes. And it works out perfectly. From just a, a purely worldly perspective, This is poetic justice. This is poetic justice. Jacob gets what he deserves after cheating Esau. In fact, he probably gets it worse. After all, Esau despised his birthright, but Jacob loved Rachel. This is poetic justice from the world's eyes. But does that mean that God is vindictive? That God enjoys and gets great pleasure from seeing us fall prey to the sins that we struggle with? No, of course not. God doesn't approve of Laban's actions here. He doesn't give Laban a free pass in order to teach Jacob a lesson. Laban, just like Jacob, just like everyone else, will be held accountable for his sin. In fact, that's what the entire book Habakkuk is about. Habakkuk is a prophet, and he's looking at the wickedness of Judah, and he begins to to 
mourn about it before God. And he says, God, will you not bring justice to your people? And God says, I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to use the nation of Babylon to take care of their wickedness. And Habakkuk laughs. Habakkuk says, surely you can't be serious about that, God. I mean, Judah is bad, but Babylon is way, way worse. And God says, don't worry about that. I'll take care of Babylon. But right now, I am focused on Judah. That's the exact same thing that's taking place here. God will take care of Laban at a later date. But right now, he is focused on Jacob. He is focused on refining Jacob. He is focused on helping Jacob identify his blind spots. For years, Jacob has used deceit in order to get ahead. He's used deceit in order to take care of himself and no one else. But now he feels pain. Now he feels hurt. Now he feels anger over being taken advantage of. God uses the pain and the suffering that lasts for 14 years in Jacob's life to bring Jacob face to face with his own wickedness, to bring him face to face with his own sin. And Jacob didn't like it. I think God does the exact same thing in our lives. He uses the sin of others to uncover sin in our lives. That doesn't mean that others get off free. But it does mean that God is teaching us in pain. And God is teaching us in suffering. If you were to sum up what this text was about, I think it would simply be this. Before God assigns, he first refines. Before God assigns us to positions of ministry, before God can use us in great, mighty, wonderful ways, he first must refine us. He first must chip away the anger, the lust, the pride that we have built up in our heart. He first must chisel away our misplaced priorities, our idols, our false hopes. And he must first point us to himself. This is not just a one-time thing. God does not just do this once. This is a, a, a thing that happens to us progressively throughout our lives. And this isn't just for those in church leadership either. It is for each and every one of us. God is constantly using our circumstances, especially the bad ones, to make us more like him. Perhaps you can look back at some hardship that you've experienced in your life. A time where you would have never chosen to go through it, but you can point at it and say, that's how God was at work. God was using that time, no matter how difficult it was for me, God was at work making me more like him. Maybe you were unexpectedly fired. God chose that time to to make you trust in him. You wouldn't have chosen that. You wouldn't have said, "I, I volunteer to go through that experience. But looking back, you can see how it made you trust God more. For others of you, it might not be a specific time. Might just be a chronic, a continuous struggle. Could be clinical depression or anxiety that just flares up out of nowhere and leaves you debilitated. For others of you, it could be a medical condition. I've shared this in the past. Uh, 
I, from birth, have been blind in my left eye. It's not something I would choose. It's not something that I would wish upon myself. But God has used that to turn me to him in in ways that I probably never would have if I weren't that way. God uses hardship. God uses pain. God uses loneliness, struggles, suffering, difficulties to shape us, to mold us, to make us more like him. Because he's preparing to do something with us. He's making us better. Making us more like him. And I'm not saying that all of us are called to to leadership in the church or in the community. But each and every one of us is called to become more and more like God. With each and every swipe of the chisel. With each and every tear that falls from our faces. We are given the chance to become more and more like God. Before God assigns, he first refines. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways that you use all times, all hardships, all suffering, everything that we wouldn't volunteer to go through. You use it to make us more like you. God, we are so thankful for that, even though we may not like it. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us and that you would help us to trust you in the midst of those seasons. Father, we do love you, and we are so thankful for you. Help us to lean on you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.